Be seated. Can you take this? Thank you. Thank you. I don't think so. Oh, well. Uh, good morning. If you would turn your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 18. I'm a little taller than the guy who is normal, normally here in, in this spot. Um, and uh, for those of you who might have come in a little late, my name is Jared Manning. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And um, over the last year, we've been in transition as a church, um, getting a new teaching pastor. Um, and so I actually haven't uh, spoken from this spot on the platform in... Uh, in almost a year, it was March, I think, of last year, um, the last time I preached. And so it is a privilege always to get to open the Bible um, for you. For those of you who are here the first time this morning as guests, um, I apologize that it's me that you're hearing from. And, uh, and if you are totally hating um, the way I preach this morning, come back next week. It'll be different. Um, if you are uh, familiar with the church and familiar with your Bible, when I told you to turn to Matthew 18, some of you may have thought, who's getting kicked out of the church this morning? Um, that's often the only time we turn to Matthew 18, sadly, um, is when it comes to practicing church discipline. Um, but we're not going to talk or spend a lot of time on that this morning. Um, but, but first, let me, uh, let me read for us from Matthew 18. We're going to go through the whole chapter, um, and then... Then we'll continue this morning. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever received one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother who sins against me? And, or how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now to pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. 
He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Back in November, we did a sermon series here at Grace entitled, uh, This is Us. This is us. And in that series, we talked about what it meant to be a part of Grace Bible Church. What it meant to be a part of the family here. um, What we do as a church together. We spent four different weeks on gather, grow, give, go. As a strategy for making disciples here at Grace. And in one of those weeks, Chad focused on what it meant to be a part of a church as a family. What it meant to be a family as the church. The church is a family. And as such, we experience many dynamics that would be similar to those that you face with your families. So I've been thinking over this concept over the last couple of weeks and months. I recognize that often when we talk about the church as family, we tend to only look at it from one side of family dynamics. So often in the church, when we talk about this place being a place of family, these people being family... We look at it from one side of family dynamics. We look at it from the aspect of these people are here for me, for me when I need something. These people are here when there's a death in my, my uh, biological family. My, my church family comes and surrounds me with comfort. They care for me. They care for us when we're sick. They lift us up and encourage us and they build us up. And we tend to always look at it from this positive family dynamic. Because that's easy. But, but if we're going to be honest with ourselves, there's a whole other side to being a family that we often just don't talk about at church. Many of you experience it every day, right? Uh, when, we, when we talk about... Um, this other dynamic, we're, we're not talking about just emotional support or comfort or physical help or, or whatever it might be. We're talking about those times when we disagree with each other and they turn into arguments. The family can, can be a place where our buttons are pushed. The people that know us the best. They know our strengths and they know our weaknesses. I grew up with a little sister was three years younger than me, and we knew how to push each other's buttons. If you had siblings, I'm sure you knew that as well. You knew how to really get them aggravated at you. And then when the fight started, I didn't do anything. I, I don't know what, what she's, she's angry about. Be- because of these dynamics... A family is often the place where we are exposed most to our own sinfulness. Family is the place where we probably offer the most apologies. These are the people we live with day in and day out. These are the people we hurt the most. And these are the people who we cling closest to when hard times do come. Maybe you grew up in a family that didn't have a great dynamic. Maybe there was no emotional support. There was no comfort. There was no peace in your family. And all you know is the bitterness of the other dynamic that we just talked about. All you know is the arguments and the fights. And for you, family was hard. And maybe you've come to this place to meet with these people... Because you need a family. But you need to know as you enter into fellowship with these people and they become your family, the hard times won't stop. We still argue like family. We still fight like family. But at the end of it all, we're still family. We still want, love one another. We still care for one another. And today I want us to look at a concept 
that many people think they know a lot about and they understand. We throw the word around a lot, and that is forgiveness. We hear it used often because we often need it, and we often have to grant it. But I'm concerned that the church as a whole... And our local assembly here at Grace Bible Church may not understand it in its fullness. May not have ever looked at the aspect of forgiveness or forgiveness as a whole from the lens of Scripture. And so there are five things that I'm going to share with you this morning that you need to experience true forgiveness and to grant true forgiveness. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. You need a humble spirit. A holy concern, a hope for reconciliation, a hard conversation, and a heart to do it again. A humble spirit, a holy concern, a hope for reconciliation, a hard conversation, and a heart to do it again. As we look at Matthew 18, verse 1, what's happened in the previous chapters, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's telling them a lot of different things about the kingdom that is now here and the kingdom that is to come, this already not yet of the kingdom. And in Luke's account, we read that the disciples, as they're walking to Capernaum down the road, the disciples are kind of behind Jesus having this conversation amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, Jesus has just said that he is going to die, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to go to the cross, and that he's going to rise again. The disciples aren't concerned about that part. They're discussing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. A, a discussion that humans often like to have. Well, who's going to be better? It's a, it's a conversation that happens from pride. They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? After Jesus has asked them, Luke's account gives us, Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? He already knows. They said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus begins this object lesson. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are worried about their position in this kingdom. And Jesus brings in a child. Now here he says, if you become like children. If you become like children. Verse 4, he explains what he meant by that. Whoever humbles himself like this child. If we become like children in our humility. Jesus is not referring to an of humility. If you've ever been around kids, you know they don't know how to act humble. That, that's not a concept that enters their mind. If you walk into a room full of kids playing with different toys, inevitably one kid's going to walk over to another, yank the toy out of their hand and say, mine. And maybe he starts to create a little pile for himself of all his toys and keeps the other kids away. There, there's no humility in a child. So what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about the act of humility. Rather, in the Greek, this word actually has the, the meaning of dependence upon someone else for everything. You know if you've been around children, they need adults for everything. If you've been around kids a lot, you've probably fed a child. Maybe a bottle or spoon-fed a child. Maybe you've changed a diaper. Maybe you've experienced those wonderful heartwarming words coming from the bathroom. I'm done. Now that is utter dependence. Right? Kids are dependent on someone else for everything. As we look at how forgiveness works in relationship to others... You must first be in complete dependence upon God. So as we walk through Matthew 18, many people break it up. You may have heard this object lesson that Jesus is giving here. You, you may have heard when your hand or foot caused you to sin, cut it off. You may have heard 
the parable of the sheep. You may have heard the parable of the servant that comes later in this passage. You may have heard all these things separately, but I think the whole of Matthew 18 actually fits together in one story. Jesus is making one statement. And it, and it all finds itself in this idea of forgiveness. It all culminates in this idea of forgiveness. So Jesus starts out with humility here at the beginning of chapter 18. The person who is not dependent on God for all things cannot begin the work of forgiveness. Well, so Jared, are you saying that someone who doesn't believe in God, who is not a follower of Jesus, they can't forgive someone? And that is what I'm saying. They can't truly forgive someone because forgiveness is a gospel concept. One can't truly understand forgiveness unless they've been forgiven their sins by God. And Jesus is going to make that point later on in this passage. But forgiveness is a gospel concept. If you aren't completely dependent upon God for all things, you are incapable of offering real forgiveness. Jesus goes on, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now here he's not talking about actual children. We make a mistake when we think that Jesus is still talking about the kids sitting there. He just said whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child, the person who humbles themselves in my name, he receives me. So from now on, he's going to use this phrase, little ones, or these little ones, or children. And every time he says it, he's referring to actual Christians, to believers. Verse 6, So, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So he's not talking here about if you cause a kid to sin... You should, it'd be better if you drown yourself. He's actually talking about if you cause a brother and sister in Christ to stumble, to sin, it's better that you kill yourself. Or better that you be dead. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives, has this idea that there's some kind of community formed, that you're receiving in this Christian to a community. Here we would talk about it in, idea of in, in, in the concept of membership. When, when you are a member of a local body, you are received into that local body. You are made a part of this family. And this now gets to the holy concern that we have for one another. That we would not cause one another to sin. Verse 7, he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. In other words, woe to the world that sin exists. Cursed is the world. Because of Adam's sin, now everyone has a sin nature. So all will sin. It's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So Jesus said, there's a sin nature in the world. Everyone will sin. But woe to the one who causes someone else to sin. And then he goes into this personal analogy or story about how serious you should take your own sin. We should be concerned about the sin of others and their holiness and we should also be concerned for our own holiness. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, Jesus isn't meaning this literally here. He's using hyperbole to describe how Bad the sin is. And how much we should care about our own holiness. We're to be concerned for the holiness of one another. We're to be concerned about our own holiness. And radically so. Radically so. To the point of cutting off limbs. To remain holy. So... We need a humble spirit. We need a concern for holiness or a holy concern. And we need a hope for reconciliation. Verse 12. It begins the story of the sheep. What do you mean? Or what do you think? 
Rhetorical, of course, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So he says, what do you think? If a shepherd loses one of his sheep, will he go look for the one and leave the ninety-nine? And the obvious answer to the rhetorical question is, yes. Yes, he would. He would leave the 99 and go after the 1. The 99 are protected among themselves. And one out there by, its, by itself, one all alone, is the one who is in danger of being eaten. And so the shepherd goes after the 1. And there were offered other shepherds in this time who would have taken care of the 99. And obviously God is talking to his church about believers among us. He's just talked about receiving and now it seems that one has gone astray. What will you do with the one who's gone astray? Let them go? Or will you go after them? And Jesus uses this story to say we should go after them. We should pursue them. And why do we pursue them? Because verse 14, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now often we'll hear this verse used in relation to unbelievers, but here Jesus is actually talking about people who have already professed faith in Jesus Christ. One of these little ones is one who has already trusted Christ, who is a part of the church, who is part of the family of God, and now he's gone astray. And because Christ is not willing that he should perish, we should not be willing that he should perish. We should pursue the one who leaves. We should pursue them in their sin. Go after them and call them back to reconciliation. There are three main points of this parable. God takes initiative to go to great lengths to bring back to himself those who are estranged from him. Reclaiming such people should bring us to joyous celebration. When we go after the one lost in sin and they return to the fold, it should result in joyous celebration, just like we see with the parable of the lost son. The prodigal who ran out and came back, there was joyous celebration when he came back. Number three, the faithfulness of the majority may never excuse us for ignoring anyone who still remains distant from God. In other words, we can't just look at ourselves and go, well, we're all doing a great job. These people are faithful. If there's one who is outside of the family, who is estranged from the family, who has left the family, Jesus said, it's not okay to sit back and just feel good about yourselves. And how all the others in the church are doing. He calls us to pursue the lost one. To leave the group and go after the lost one. Once we understand our own standing before God. And our living in complete dependence on him. Then and only then can we do the work of forgiveness. So we have this hope that people would be reconciled. When we pursue someone over their sin, we go after them and call them to repentance and to come back into the family. We have a hope that they would be reconciled. It's not judgmental. We don't run out and run after them to condemn them for running out. To condemn them in their sin, but we run pleading with them to come back to come back and know and understand the grace of God and the church should be the one place where sinners are welcomed home with joyous celebration. We would be reconciled with one another. And how do we do that here at Grace Bible Church? In a lot of ways that, that we pursue one another in relationship, how we keep a pulse on how people are doing spiritually, and one of the key ways that we do that here is, is through our life groups, through small groups that meet during the week in homes. Because it's impossible for anyone standing on this platform to know everything that's going on in every life that's represented in this room in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. 
We can't know one another in this room. We can know a name. We can know a face. We might know what family you belong to. But we can't really know each other and know each other's stuff in an hour and a half in this room on a Sunday. So we do that through small groups that we meet together. We talk about our struggle. We talk about our sin. We understand one another. Love one another and care for one another. And if one of us leaves, we go after one another. And that leads to a hard conversation. A hard conversation. Jesus describes the conversation that will happen in verses 15 through 20. The work of forgiveness begins with a hard conversation. Jesus doesn't start this out. If your brother sins against you, forgive and forget and move on. Jesus doesn't begin this statement. If your brother sins, just forgive him, let it go. As one Disney princess would say. Just let it go and let God and, and keep him there. No, Jesus says, go to him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him his fault. This is contrary to our nature. When someone hurts you or you know you've done something to hurt or sin against someone else, our nature is to run away. Our nature is to avoid. Our nature is to ignore. Maybe even say to ourselves, we've forgiven them. We'll say, oh, I've forgiven them for that. That's not Jesus' prescription. This is how the world deals with interpersonal sin. This is how the world deals with interpersonal sin because they don't understand the forgiveness of God. They're not independence on the Holy Spirit. And so they deal with it by avoidance or by saying, oh, I've forgiven them, but then never speaking to the person again. That's not forgiveness. That's not reconciliation. The whole point of this is, is to be reconciled to one another. But as Christians, we war against our nature. As followers of Jesus, we're called to war against our sinful nature and to be obedient to Christ and to follow his ways. We recognize that the human nature is sinful and must be conquered by the spirit that lives in us. So we can't ignore or we cannot just get by by blowing off sin of another believer. So he says, if your brother sins against you, notice throughout this from verse 15 to 20, there are a lot of conditional statements. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he hasn't sinned against you, maybe you should consider before you go telling him his fault. <laughs> maybe they just didn't live up to a preference that you had. Maybe they let you down in some way. It doesn't mean not to have that conversation. It doesn't mean you never tell someone, hey, that, this is not a sin issue. But that hurt me or disappointed me. But we need to understand the context here of what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's dealing specifically with sin issues. So he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Hmm, wonder why Jesus had to mention that. How often do we experience someone sinning against us and the first person we tell about it is not the person who sinned against us? It's everybody else. You'll never believe what so-and-so did to me. I have half a mind. Yes, you do have half a mind because you just went and told somebody else about somebody sinning against you. Do what Jesus said and go to that person. And you and him alone. No one else. Go tell them what they've done. And if... He listens to you. Another conditional statement. You have gained your brother. This, this word here in the Greek that listens to you, if he listens to you, it means he actually, he actually recognizes, confesses the sin. And says, yeah, I did that. And if he does, you've gained your brother. You've just experienced reconciliation. 
He's recognized his sin. You have forgiven him. You're reconciled together again. Nothing else has to be done. Including talking about it to other people. Nothing else is to be done. But, verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Take one or two others with you. Don't get the circle really big. Not everybody needs to know about this. Take one or two others with you. Preferably those who who may not be on your side, so to speak. But people who could be wise and discerning among two brothers or two sisters in Christ and be able to say, no, actually you're wrong in the way you're handling this. He says, have some counsel there so that the charge may be established by evidence of two or three. If the person has not admitted they were in sin, has not confessed, then two or three can say, we were all there, we saw that he was unrepentant, or she was unrepentant. She said, if that's the case, if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, then tell it to the church. Now, this instance here is one of only a couple of times that Jesus uses the word church in the Gospels. He doesn't actually use the word church very often. And it really is more of, uh, in, in the Greek, it has this idea of assembly. The church had not yet been established fully here. And so Jesus is talking about an assembly. It may not mean the whole church. Here in our, in our context, we think, oh man, they've got to stand up on the platform and admit their sin before the, the whole church. This has more of an idea of, you tell it to a bigger group of people. So maybe if you're in a life group, you've taken two or three, and this person is not repentant, then you take it to the whole group. You may take it to the elders. You may take it to the deacon body. But Jesus has this idea in mind that it keeps escalating. If the person is unrepentant, then it keeps escalating. More and more people need to be brought in to call this person to repentance. And the whole point is that the person would be reconciled back to his family. That he would come back to his family. If he refuses to listen to them, the end of verse 17, even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, consider him a sinner apart from God. It doesn't start there, right? Jesus doesn't say, go to him in private and if... If he doesn't confess, just consider that he's not a Christian. We often run to that, right? Oh, they're not a Christian. They couldn't do that and be a Christian. We like to be fruit inspectors and judge one another. But this is Jesus' prescription for how we judge one another and how we forgive one another. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are many uh, prosperity gospel preachers that might use that to uh, talk about loosing your wallet. Um, But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's still in the context of this, this hard conversation. If you consider this person an unbeliever then heaven is on your side. If the church has called someone to repentance and they refuse, Jesus is saying, heaven is on your side. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you come to the conclusion he is a believer and you welcome him back into fellowship, then heaven applauds. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, he's still in the same conversation about forgiveness. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. If two of you, as witnesses, have come together and this person has repented, then heaven agrees. Welcome him back in to the family. If you decide that he is unrepentant and 
will not come back into the church, then it will be so in heaven. Verse 20, verse that's often taken out of context, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This doesn't have to do with our Sunday morning worship. This verse has nothing to do with your tiny Bible study. This verse in context has everything to do with what Jesus just talked about in forgiveness and what we would refer to as church discipline, where two or three, he's mentioned the two or three witnesses earlier in the passage. He's continuing the same flow of thought for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So these two or three witnesses who have gone to a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin have called them to confess and repent of their sin. Jesus says, I am there among them. I'm on their side. I'm with them in that conversation. And whatever they decide, I have decided. All throughout these few verses, we have lots of conditional statements. He uses if a lot. A lot. And in our world today, we have misunderstood forgiveness and that we have made it unconditional. We've made it unconditional. You may have been a fan of Oprah in the 90s, and I'm not judging you. It was on often in our house. And Oprah would often have people sitting on her couch who had been abused by either a spouse or a father or a mother, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And and they would be talking about all the hurt and pain that they had experienced. And Oprah's words to this person was almost always, well, you need to forgive them. You need to forgive them. And it's a misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is because... You can't forgive someone who has not confessed and apologized. See, we've made forgiveness synonymous with agape love. Because we have no category for unconditional love in a world that does not have Jesus or understand salvation in Christ, there is no, there's no category for loving someone unconditionally, even when they sin against you. And so we've taken forgiveness, a gospel concept, and equated it with unconditional love. See what I mean? In Luke 17, 3 and 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. There's an if. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. All throughout the Bible... We see that forgiveness is actually conditional upon someone confessing and repenting of their sin. Psalm 32, 5. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God didn't just wipe away David's sin without David's confession and repentance. He doesn't do that for us. If forgiveness is unconditional, then every person in the world should have God's forgiveness. But it's not. It's based on a condition. And the condition is that we would confess our sins and repent and turn to Christ for his salvation. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a big if at the beginning of that verse. Forgiveness is conditional. Love is unconditional. And because our our world doesn't really have a category for that, the waters have gotten murky in the church. Relationships have actually been broken because we don't understand what it means to have a hard conversation with someone. We let it go. We ignore it. We push it aside and harbor bitterness toward people because we never were willing to have the hard conversation that the gospel calls us to have. Forgiveness, as defined by the Bible, is always about the person in sin. That's what Jesus has spent this whole passage talking about. 
is the one who has strayed, the one who has sinned against you. It's always about calling that person back. It's not about you. It's not about you. But living in the selfish world that we live in, we've made forgiveness about us, about my comfort, right? I forgive that person so that I don't live in turmoil. Well, well, no, you love that person unconditionally like Christ has loved that person so that you don't harbor bitterness. But you haven't forgiven them because you still have to go have a conversation. There's a conversation Jesus expects for you to have with that person. And you haven't had it yet. And it's about restoring a relationship between you and that person. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation as believers in Christ. And that means that we reconcile with one another. That we have hard conversations. That we restore fellowship through these conversations. And through forgiveness as it's defined by the Bible. And lastly, we have to have a heart to do it again. So Jesus talked about this forgiveness. And then verse 21, Peter has a question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now there was a rabbinical teaching that you should forgive a person three times. And so that's what's in Peter's mind. Is this Jewish teaching that you should forgive someone who sinned against you three times. And so Peter, thinking in generous terms, goes, okay, I see what he's saying. So should we forgive them seven times? Jesus, that's four more times than, than what was previously allowed. Seven times? And, and as Jesus always does, he escalates it, right? Jesus never makes the law easier. He makes it harder. Jesus said to him, I, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And again, he's not saying we keep a chalkboard and a tally of how many times we've forgiven that person. And once we get to 77, that's it. Making the statement that no, 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 no. You forgive over and over and over and over again. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, he, uh, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Talents is the highest denomination of money in the Roman Empire at this time. And 10,000 is the biggest number in the Greek language at this time. So it is a huge amount of money that this servant owes to the king. One that he will never repay. It's anywhere between hundreds of millions to one trillion dollars in today's money. That's how much this one individual owes the king. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. In other words, payment's never going to be made. <laughs> He's going to sell him. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't just release him and say, okay, I'm not going to sell you off. Keep doing what you do. Pay me when you get a chance. No, he released him and forgave him the debt. Something we often forget is that forgiveness comes with a cost. Forgiveness comes with a cost. And it costs the person who is doing the forgiving every time. And I'm afraid it's why we're often afraid to have these conversations. Because we know it will cost us something. There is no revenge that will be gotten. We have to clear the debt. And he cleared this man's debt. That king will never see all the money that he owed him. And the king took it on himself. This is what Jesus has done for us. The debt that we owe to God is our very lives for the sin that we've committed against him. And Jesus and his goodness and mercy says, I've taken it on myself. I took the death that you deserved on me. 
and I've made the payment that you can go free. The way we forgive one another, the way we interact with one another, the way we have these interpersonal relationships in the family of God is a glorious display of the gospel of Jesus. This king forgave the debt, but look at verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a really small amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Saying, pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. Now why would somebody who had just been forgiven everything that they owed run to someone for a measly little amount of money that wasn't even near to the amount that he owed the king and choke him and saying, pay what you owe. And then when the, patient, or when the servant pleaded with him to have patience, he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Why would he do that? I would argue because it's, he had not really accepted the forgiveness of the king. He had not truly accepted the forgiveness that he had already been granted. He went to this other servant asking for his money because he's still thinking, I've got to pay the king something. He let me off. I need to pay him something. So I'm going to go to other people that owe me money and get the money from them and go pay him. The Christian who is unforgiving of his brother has never really understood the forgiveness they have in Christ. They are still working to pay God back for something that's been done for them in full. The debt is paid. But they're still working to try to pay him something back. And it leads to a heart that can't forgive others because they really still expect payment because they see God is still expecting payment. Verse 32, his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Notice in verse 31, his fellow servants saw him. They saw what was going on. The world that we live in sees us. They see what's going on in our interpersonal relationships. They see how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how we forgive one another. They see what's happening. And as people who claim to have been forgiven all of our sins by Jesus, when we go and we act in an unforgiving way to other Christians or other people, the world watches and they see and they go, well, that person claims that they've been like forgiven everything, but they don't offer it themselves. It turns them off to your message, to the message of Jesus. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Put him in jail until he could pay all of his debt. How long was that? It's a lifetime sentence. He will never be able to pay the debt from jail. How will he make money? It was a lifetime sentence. It was forever. And verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, then you really don't understand the forgiveness of Christ and you probably have not accepted it. And your doom will be everlasting punishment just like this servant who's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. If you can't forgive another, you have not truly accepted God's forgiveness. He has paid the debt. And those who trust in Christ have a heart to forgive over and over and over and over again. Because we've been forgiven everything. We've sinned against an infinite holy God and he's wiped the slate clean in Jesus I said you owe nothing I've taken it all myself and then how could we not offer the same forgiveness to others so we depend on God for everything we have a holy concern for ourselves and for one another 
And it's because of that we hope for reconciliation. We have hard conversations. And we have a heart that will do it over and over again. Who are the people in your life that you need to have the hard conversation with? Someone has sinned against you. You haven't had the talk. You've avoided the situation. You track them on Facebook to see where they are and you don't go there when they're there. That's why I don't give Facebook my location. Um, you, you don't have conversations with them anymore. You avoid them at church. You're skirting the situation. Or maybe you sinned against someone and you're kind of avoiding a humble spirit would just go to that person and say, listen, I know I sinned against you and I'm sorry. But maybe they don't recognize they've sinned against you. It's often the case that the person who's sinned against another doesn't even see it or recognize it. And so it's our responsibility as brothers and sisters to go to that person and say, listen, we've got to have a hard conversation. But I have a hope that we're going to be reconciled and this can be behind us because we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. Maybe you have somebody who just, they didn't sin against you. They didn't live up to an expectation. There was a preference that you had that they may not have served in the way that you wanted them to. The Bible also has a way of dealing with that. Paul says, uh, bear with one another in love. When it's preference issues, man, you just bear with each other because we're all messed up and we're gonna, we're gonna disappoint each other every now and then, but we bear with one another. I got in a lot of fights with my sister when, when we were kids. I didn't like walk out of the house and run away. You just bear with it. We're family. We love each other. We're gonna stick together. If I was upset at my mom and dad for something, I did not show up to eat. The Lord knows I did not stay away from the dinner table. We bear with one another in love because we understand unconditional love has been given to us. We can give it to other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus, we have been given all things and we have been forgiven all things. And we recognize this morning our utter dependence on you for our very breath. And God, I pray that we would be a people that seek one another out, that we would be reconciled to one another for the sake that the gospel would continue to go out from this place, from our lives being lived before a watching world. We thank you that our debt has been paid by Jesus in full and we owe nothing. It's in his powerful name we pray, amen.